This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part One, Chapter Thirteen. Well, Captain, where are we going to begin? asked Pencroft next morning of the engineer. At the beginning, replied Cyrus Harding. And in fact, the settlers were compelled to begin at the very beginning. They did not possess even the tools necessary for making tools, and they were not even in the condition of nature, who, having time, husbands her strength. They had no time, since they had to provide for the immediate wants of their existence, and though, profiting by acquired experience, they had nothing to invent, still they had everything to make. Their iron and their steel were as yet only in the state of minerals, their earthenware in the state of clay, their linen and their clothes in the state of textile material. It must be said, however, that the settlers were men in the complete and higher sense of the word. The engineer Harding could not have been seconded by more intelligent companions, nor with more devotion and zeal. He had tried them, he knew their abilities. Gideon Spilett, a talented reporter, having learned everything so as to be able to speak of everything, would contribute largely with his head and hands to the colonization of the island. He would not draw back from any task. A determined sportsman, he would make a business of what till then had only been a pleasure to him. Herbert, a gallant boy, already remarkably well informed in the natural sciences, would render greater service to the common cause. Neb was devotion personified, clever, intelligent, indefatigable, robust, with iron health. He knew a little about the work of the forge, and could not fail to be very useful in the colony. As to Pencroft, he had sailed over every sea, a carpenter in the dockyards in Brooklyn, assistant tailor in the vessels of the state, gardener, cultivator during his holidays, etc., and, like all seamen, fit for anything, he knew how to do everything. It would have been difficult to unite five men better fitted to struggle against fate, more certain to triumph over it. At the beginning, Cyrus Harding had said, now this beginning of which the engineer spoke was the construction of an apparatus which would serve to transform the natural substances. The part which heat plays in these transformations is known. Now fuel, wood or coal, was ready for immediate use, and an oven must be built to use it. "'What is this oven for?' asked Pencroft. "'To make the pottery which we have need of,' replied Harding. "'And of what shall we make the oven?' with bricks. And the bricks? With clay. Let us start, my friends. To save trouble we will establish our manufactory at the place of production. Neb will bring provisions, and there will be no lack of fire to cook the food. No, replied the reporter, but if there is a lack of food for want of instruments for the chase. Ah, if only we had a knife, cried the sailor. Well, asked Cyrus Harding, well, I would soon make a bow and arrows, and then there would be plenty of game in the larder. Yes, a knife, a sharp blade, said the engineer, as if he was speaking to himself. At this moment his eyes fell upon Top, who was running about on the shore. 
Suddenly Harding's face became animated. "'Top, here!' said he. The dog came at his master's call. The latter took Top's head between his hands, and unfastening the collar which the animal wore round his neck, he broke it in two, saying, "'There are two knives, Pencroft.' Two hurrahs from the sailor was the reply. Top's collar was made of a thin piece of tempered steel. They had only to sharpen it on a piece of sandstone, then to raise the edge on a finer stone. Now sandstone was abundant on the beach, and two hours after the stock of tools in the colony consisted of two sharp blades, which were easily fixed in solid handles. The production of these their first tools was hailed as a triumph. It was indeed a valuable result of their labor, and a very opportune one. They set out. Cyrus Harding proposed that they should return to the western shore of the lake, where the day before he had noticed the clayey ground of which he possessed a specimen. They therefore followed the bank of the Mercy, traversed Prospect Heights, and after a walk of five miles or more they reached a glade situated two hundred feet from Lake Grant. On the way Herbert had discovered a tree, the branches of which the Indians of South America employ for making their bows. It was the Krijimba, of the palm family, which does not bear edible fruit. Long straight branches were cut, the leaves stripped off, it was shaped, stronger in the middle, more slender at the extremities, and nothing remained to be done but to find a plant fit to make the bowstring. This was the Hibiscus heterophilus, which furnishes fibres of such remarkable tenacity that they have been compared to the tendons of animals. Pencroft thus obtained bows of tolerable strength, for which he only wanted arrows. These were easily made with straight, stiff branches, without knots, but the points with which they must be armed, that is to say, a substance to serve in lieu of iron, could not be met with so easily. But Pencroft said that having done his part of the work, chance would do the rest. The settlers arrived on the ground which had been discovered the day before. Being composed of the sort of clay which is used for making bricks and tiles, it was very useful for the work in question. There was no great difficulty in it. It was enough to scour the clay with sand, then to mould the bricks and bake them by the heat of a wood fire. Generally bricks are formed in moulds, but the engineer contented himself with making them by hand. All that day, and the day following, were employed in this work. The clay, soaked in water, was mixed by the feet and hands of the manipulators, and then divided into pieces of equal size. A practiced workman can make, without a machine, about ten thousand bricks in twelve hours. But in their two days' work the five brickmakers on Lincoln Island had not made more than three thousand, which were ranged near each other until the time when their complete desiccation would permit them to be used in building the oven, that is to say, in three or four days. It was on the 2nd of April that Harding had employed himself in fixing the orientation of the island, or, in other words, the precise spot where the sun rose. The day before he had noted exactly the hour when the sun disappeared beneath the horizon, making allowance for the refraction. This morning he noted, no less exactly, the hour at which it reappeared. Between this setting and rising twelve hours, twenty-four minutes passed. 
Then, six hours twelve minutes after its rising, the sun on this day would exactly pass the meridian, and the point of the sky which it occupied at this moment would be the north. At the set hour Cyrus marked this point, and putting in a line with the sun two trees which would serve him for marks, he thus obtained an invariable meridian for his ulterior operations. The settlers employed the two days before the oven was built, in collecting fuel. Branches were cut all round the glade, and they picked up all the fallen wood under the trees. They were also able to hunt with greater success, since Pencroft now possessed some dozen arrows armed with sharp points. It was Top who had furnished these points by bringing in a porcupine, rather inferior eating, but of great value, thanks to the quills with which it bristled. These quills were fixed firmly at the ends of the arrows, the flight of which was made more certain by some cockatoo's feathers. The reporter and Herbert soon became very skilful archers. Game of all sorts, in consequence, abounded at the chimneys, capybaras, pigeons, agouties, grouse, etc. The greater part of these animals were killed in the part of the forest on the left bank of the Mercy, to which they gave the name of Jacamar Wood, in remembrance of the bird which Pencroft and Herbert had pursued when on their first exploration. This game was eaten fresh, but they preserved some capybara hams by smoking them above a fire of green wood, after having perfumed them with sweet-smelling leaves. However, this food, although very strengthening, was always roast upon roast, and the party would have been delighted to hear some soup bubbling on the hearth, but they must wait till a pot could be made, and consequently till the oven was built. During these excursions, which were not extended far from the brickfield, the hunters could discern the recent passage of animals of a large size, armed with powerful claws, but they could not recognize the species. Cyrus Harding advised them to be very careful, as the forest probably enclosed many dangerous beasts. And he did right. Indeed, Gideon Spilett and Herbert one day saw an animal which resembled a jaguar. Happily the creature did not attack them, or they might not have escaped without a severe wound. As soon as he could get a regular weapon, that is to say, one of the guns which Pencroft begged for, Gideon Spilett resolved to make desperate war against the ferocious beasts, and exterminate them from the island. The chimneys during these few days were not made more comfortable, for the engineer hoped to discover, or build if necessary, a more convenient dwelling. They contented themselves with spreading moss and dry leaves on the sand of the passages, and on these primitive couches the tired workers slept soundly. They also reckoned the days they had passed on Lincoln Island, and from that time kept a regular account. The 5th of April, which was Wednesday, was twelve days from the time when the wind threw the castaways on this shore. On the 6th of April, at daybreak, the engineer and his companions were collected in the glade, at the place where they were going to perform the operation of baking the bricks. Naturally this had to be in the open air, and not in a kiln, or rather the agglomeration of bricks made an enormous kiln which would bake itself. The fuel, made of well-prepared faggots, was laid on the ground and surrounded with several rows of dried bricks, which soon formed an enormous cube. 
to the exterior of which they contrived air-holes. The work lasted all day, and it was not till the evening that they set fire to the faggots. No one slept that night, all watching carefully to keep up the fire. The operation lasted forty-eight hours, and succeeded perfectly. It then became necessary to leave the smoking mass to cool, and during this time Neb and Pencroft, guided by Cyrus Harding, brought, on a hurdle made of interlaced branches, loads of carbonate of lime and common stones, which were very abundant, to the north of the lake. These stones, when decomposed by heat, made a very strong quicklime, greatly increased by slacking, at least as pure as if it had been produced by the calcination of chalk or marble. Mixed with sand, the lime made excellent mortar. The result of these different works was that, on the ninth of April, the engineer had at his disposal a quantity of prepared lime and some thousands of bricks. Without losing an instant, therefore, they began the construction of a kiln to bake the pottery, which was indispensable for their domestic use. They succeeded without much difficulty. Five days after, the kiln was supplied with coal, which the engineer had discovered lying open to the sky towards the mouth of the Red Creek, and the first smoke escaped from a chimney twenty feet high. The glade was transformed into a manufactory, and Pencroft was not far wrong in believing that from this kiln would issue all the products of modern industry. In the meantime, what the settlers first manufactured was a common pottery in which to cook their food. The chief material was clay, to which Harding added a little lime and quartz. This paste made regular pipe clay, with which they manufactured bowls, cups molded on stones of a proper size, great jars, and pots to hold water, etc. The shape of these objects was clumsy and defective, but after they had been baked at a high temperature, the kitchen of the chimneys was provided with a number of utensils, as precious to the settlers as the most beautifully enameled china. We must mention here that Pencroft, desirous to know if the clay thus prepared was worthy of its name of pipe-clay, made some large pipes, which he thought charming, but for which, alas, he had no tobacco, and that was a great privation to Pencroft. "'But tobacco will come like everything else,' he repeated, in a burst of absolute confidence. This work lasted till the 15th of April, and the time was well employed. The settlers, having become potters, made nothing but pottery. When it suited Cyrus Harding to change them into smiths, they would become smiths. But the next day being Sunday, and also Easter Sunday, all agreed to sanctify the day by rest. These Americans were religious men, scrupulous observers of the precepts of the Bible, and their situation could not but develop sentiments of confidence towards the author of all things. On the evening of the 15th of April they returned to the chimneys, carrying with them the pottery, the furnace being extinguished until they could put it to a new use. Their return was marked by a fortunate incident. The engineer discovered a substance which replaced tinder. It is known that a spongy, velvety flesh is procured from a certain mushroom of the genus Polyphorus. Properly prepared, it is extremely inflammable, 
especially when it has previously been saturated with gunpowder or boiled in a solution of nitrate or chlorate of potash. But till then they had not found any of these polypores, or even any of the morels which could replace them. On this day the engineer, seeing a plant belonging to the wormwood genus, the principal species of which are absinthe, balm mint, tarragon, etc., gathered several tufts, and presenting them to the sailor said, Here, Pencroft, this will please you. Pencroft looked attentively at the plant, covered with long silky hair, the leaves being clothed with soft down. "'What's that, Captain?' asked Pencroft. "'Is it tobacco?' "'No,' replied Harding. "'It is wormwood. Chinese wormwood to the learned, but to us it will be tinder.' When the wormwood was properly dried, it provided them with a very inflammable substance, especially afterwards when the engineer had impregnated it with nitrate of potash of which the island possessed several beds, and which is, in truth, saltpetre. The colonists had a good supper that evening. Neb prepared some agouti soup, a smoked capybara ham, to which was added the boiled tubercules of the caladium mycorrhizum, an herbaceous plant of the arum family. They had an excellent taste, and were very nutritious being something similar to the substance which is sold in England under the name of Portland Sago. They were also a good substitute for bread, which the settlers in Lincoln Island did not yet possess. When supper was finished, before sleeping, Harding and his companions went to take the air on the beach. It was eight o'clock in the evening. The night was magnificent. The moon, which had been full five days before, had not yet risen but the horizon was already silvered by those soft, pale shades which might be called the dawn of the moon. At the southern zenith glittered the circumpolar constellations, and above all the southern cross, which some days before the engineer had greeted on the summit of Mount Franklin. Cyrus Harding gazed for some time at this splendid constellation, which has at its summit and at its base two stars of the first magnitude, at its left arm a star of the second, and at its right arm a star of the third magnitude. Then, after some minutes' thought, Herbert, he asked of the lad, is not this the fifteenth of April? Yes, Captain, replied Herbert. Well, if I am not mistaken, to-morrow will be one of the four days in the year in which the real time is identical with average time. That is to say, my boy, that to-morrow, to within some seconds, the sun will pass the meridian just at midday by the clocks. If the weather is fine, I think that I shall obtain the longitude of the island with an approximation of some degrees. "'Without instruments? Without a sextant?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'Yes,' replied the engineer. "'Also, since the night is clear, I will try this very evening to obtain our latitude by calculating the height of the southern cross, that is, from the southern pole above the horizon. You understand, my friends, that before undertaking the work of installation in earnest it is not enough to have found out that this land is an island. We must, as nearly as possible, know at what distance it is situated, either from the American continent or Australia, 
or from the principal archipelagos of the Pacific. In fact, said the reporter, instead of building a house, it would be more important to build a boat, if by chance we are not more than a hundred miles from an inhabited coast. That is why, returned Harding, I am going to try this evening to calculate the latitude of Lincoln Island, and to-morrow at midday I will try to calculate the longitude. If the engineer had possessed a sextant, an apparatus with which the angular distance of objects can be measured with great precision, there would have been no difficulty in the operation. This evening by the height of the pole, the next day by the passing of the sun at the meridian, he would obtain the position of the island, but as they had not won, he would have to supply the deficiency. Harding then entered the chimneys. By the light of the fire he cut two little flat rulers, which he joined together at one end, so as to form a pair of compasses, whose legs could separate or come together. The fastening was fixed with a strong acacia thorn which was found in the woodpile. This instrument finished, the engineer returned to the beach, but as it was necessary to take the height of the pole from above a clear horizon, that is, a sea horizon, and his claw cape hid the southern horizon, he was obliged to look for a more suitable station. The best would evidently have been the shore exposed directly to the south, but the mercy would have to be crossed, and that was a difficulty. Harding resolved, in consequence, to make his observation from Prospect Heights, taking into consideration its height above the level of the sea, a height which he intended to calculate next day by a simple process of elementary geometry. The settlers, therefore, went to the plateau, ascending the left bank of the Mercy, and placed themselves on the edge which looked northwest and southeast, that is, above the curiously shaped rocks which bordered the river. This part of the plateau commanded the heights of the left bank, which sloped away to the extremity of Claw Cape and to the southern side of the island. No obstacle intercepted their gaze, which swept the horizon in a semicircle from the Cape to reptile end. To the south the horizon, lighted by the first rays of the moon, was very clearly defined against the sky. At this moment the southern cross presented itself to the observer in an inverted position, the star Alpha marking its base, which is nearer to the southern pole. This constellation is not situated as near to the Antarctic pole as the polar star is to the Arctic pole. The star Alpha is about twenty-seven degrees from it, but Cyrus Harding knew this, and made allowance for it in his calculation. He then took care also to observe the moment when it passed the meridian below the pole, which would simplify the operation. Cyrus Harding pointed one leg of the compasses to the horizon, the other to Alpha, and the space between the two legs gave him the angular distance which separated Alpha from the horizon. In order to fix the angle obtained, he fastened with thorns the two pieces of wood on a third placed transversely, so that their separation should be properly maintained. That done, there was only the angle to calculate by bringing back the observation to the level of the sea, taking into consideration the depression of the horizon, which would necessitate measuring the height of the cliff. The value of this angle would give the height of Alpha, 
and consequently that of the pole above the horizon, that is to say, the latitude of the island, since the latitude of a point of the globe is always equal to the height of the pole above the horizon of this point. The calculations were left for the next day, and at ten o'clock every one was sleeping soundly. End of chapter.